We'll be turning in just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but if you would, take a little detour and go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 helps us uh, with a certain aspects of this getting into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he, James, of course, one of the first uh, authors of Scripture, uh, of the New Testament, a very early um, letter or sermon or however we understand it. Also, understanding that James being the half-brother or or however you want to say, of our Lord Jesus Christ, probably had a lot of spiritual influence by the Lord. Now, was not a believer. James was not a believer during Jesus' earthly ministry, but it seems like after his death, burial, and resurrection, James and the other brothers uh, trusted in, in him, their big brother, and were very much uh, useful in the advancement of the church, particularly in Jerusalem. But James, again, however you understand the dynamics of the of the holy family, as it's called, Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the others that came along, it's evident, perhaps, we suggest that J- that Joseph, rather, the father of the family, died or, or something that, that he was not on the scene at some point by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. The question is, well, when did he die and how did that happen? But one of the suppositions of that is Jesus may have fulfilled the role of a father in the household in the absence of Joseph, such that, you know, leading family devotions, as it were, leading uh, uh, family worship, as we refer to it, uh, singing, praying, reading scripture, reciting scripture, applying scripture, all these wonderful things, such that when we read James, and then we compare James's writing with what we read about in the Gospels, we see a very fine overlap, a very fine parallel between that. The conclusion perhaps, is that a lot of what James is writing is straight from the Lord Jesus' mouth, not so much in his earthly ministry, public ministry anyway, and with the apostles and so forth, but in the house, family worship, family discipleship, and Jesus teaching teaching, uh, uh, his brothers and his sisters as they came along as well. Anyway, so James is teaching these wonderful things, fantastic uh, letter, uh, fantastic instruction that he uh, receives or, or, or sends to us. One of the things he makes the point of here at the end, well, in in chapter 2, is this contrast. Excuse me, it's not chapter 2. It's chapter 3. It's where we are turning, James 3. At the in the middle and toward the end of James 3 is a contrast that you know, these things just should not be. And particularly, he gives the example in verse, um, well, I'd read the whole chapter, but I can't. I'm not going to do that. He's talking about the, the tongue, the, the speech that we have. And he says, well, if we just pick up in verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Wait a minute, from the same mouth we bless, and you back up a verse, blessing the Father, but also cursing men. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. That doesn't follow. If we are in Christ and we're praising God and we're glorifying God, but then we are not just rude, mean, but hateful toward our fellow brothers in Christ, that's not right. That cannot be so. Verse 11 says, does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? No, I mean, you wouldn't want that. Good grief. That's that's not appropriate. Or another example, verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Well, even we know the answer is no, it can't do that. Fig trees produce figs, not olives, unless you graft. You can find all kinds of exceptions, but don't do that. The point is fig trees produce figs, olive trees produce olives, and salt water cannot produce fresh water. It doesn't follow. If this is true, then that cannot be true. There's a disconnect. And you cannot have both both ways. And so now he says, and this gets into our, our uh, topic back in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3, about wisdom, worldly wisdom, versus the wisdom from God. 
And I'll just read this because it's so profound, informing what we're doing in um, in First Corinthians. Verse 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, the contrast between the wisdom of this age, which he says is earthly, natural, demonic, in verse 15, versus the wisdom from above, and the characteristics of those things. If you have the wisdom from above, then you are going to be, verse 17, pure, peaceable, and so forth, and peaceful. There's going to be peace in the relationships. If it's the wisdom from this world, well, of course, there's going to be selfish ambition, jealousy, and how does he bitter jealousy in verse 14? That's not, that's not godly. That's not appropriate toward, uh, toward what is, is real for those who are in Christ, those who are uh, born from above, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. So James teaches us the very same thing. It's not like Paul's making it up in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3 and so forth. It's right in line with what Scripture is teaching us from the beginning to the end. There is a, a, a difference, a change that has been made for those who are in Christ. We cannot live the same way, especially as we relate to one another. There is a difference how we relate, not, not selfishly, self-interested, self-protection. We're not about ourselves. We are to, to serve other people. We're to think of other people as more important than ourselves, to show kindness. Again, verse uh, 17, that we are peaceable, considerate toward other people, submissive even toward one another, submitting to one another fear of Christ, full of mercy and good fruits. Not just um, a little bit, but full of Full of mercy, and it's it's not our own. It's not our own um, supply. It's God's supply in us. We don't doubt. We don't have this kind of, as he said in chapter one, about this the shifting or the the uncertainty. The uh, um, somebody has described. I forget who it is now. Uh, having both feet firmly planted in midair. That's not us. We are firmly planted in God and His truth, and we are without hypocrisy. We're genuine people, and so as we return back to First Corinthians chapter three. We keep that in mind that there is a contrast and there is a stark difference between those who are in the wisdom of the world, the natural demonic, and and uh, I forget the third characteristic there in uh, James 3, but we are in Christ, the wisdom that comes from above, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, as, as uh, Hebrews talks about. But we are those who manifest this wonderful uh, transition, this difference, uh, again, a disconnect and so when we look at what's going on in the Corinthian church, we see, okay, you guys, you guys said that you're in Christ. You guys have proven that you know the gospel and you've believed the gospel. Paul says, I don't doubt that. Again, one of the churches, uh, the church in Corinth was one of the longest, how do we say it? He was in Corinth, one, the second longest time of any church in his, in his ministry. He was in Ephesus for three years. He was in Corinth for a year and a half. Excuse me, I'm letting my northern Kentucky accent, Corinth, uh, Corinth, Cor how do you want to say it? And he he uh, is he knows the church and he can specify. I know you're a believer and you're, but you're not acting like it. I don't understand what's going on. There is this there's this worldliness that is so endemic in your life that that's, that cannot be seeking after the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness before God, which accuses God's wisdom of being foolish. That cannot be. But particularly 
as it pertains to your relationships in the church. We have, I mean, we have in our fellowship a, a center aisle, and it's almost like they had four central aisles, right? Remember how they said, I'm of I'm Cephas, and I'm of Apollos, and, and Paul, and I have these different factions going on. And Paul says, that cannot be. What are you celebrating? What are you dividing yourself over? He's going to return to that idea very specifically here in chapter 3. So he says here in, in verse 1, I do have a text on the screen. Uh, I was going to put an outline on, on the screen, but the outline is the text. I mean, it just flows so carefully. So you, you can see it or follow along in your, in your Bible or whichever. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1 says, And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're still not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? He remembers his first ministry among them. He says, when I was with you, if you don't mind, and I, brothers, when I was with you, I was not able to speak to you. Now, he's writing some years after this, writing this, his, <clears throat> what we have as First Corinthians, but was likely his second uh, letter to the church. <clears throat> and he says, you remember when I was with you, I was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. Now, you remember in chapter 2, he used this word spiritual. This is kind of a, a he's using that term as a segue into this next section, chapter 3. And in chapter 2, though, he was using this word spiritual in contrast to those who are, uh, I forget the, the word here again, sukikos is the word, I forget how it's translated here. A natural man, I think it is how it's translated here. Uh, the one who does not have the spirit, an unregenerate, just a non-Christian. The contrast in that sense, when, when he talks about spiritual, are those who are Christians versus those who are not Christians. Here, though, it seems like he uses the word, as it's used elsewhere in Scripture, not so much to, to diagnose those who are in Christ and those who are not, but those who are mature in Christ, those who are acting like the Spirit wants us to act, the fruit of the Spirit and so forth, those spiritual people versus, as it says, babes in Christ, infants in Christ, they're in Christ, they're saved, so the contrast is not between saved and unsaved, but saved as in mature and those who have a long way to go. I mean, you're, you're still an infant. This is you know, having ministry there for a year and a half and now some years have passed. You're still like this? Babes, you, you still lack this understanding or if not the understanding, at least the application of it. You're, you're acting like children. Now, we see children celebrated in Scripture, Matthew 18, for example, let the, well, earlier in the text, in the Gospels, let the little children come to me. But in Matthew 18, he says, unless you turn and become like this child, you will have no admittance or entry or, or, or vision of the kingdom of God. And so there is an aspect, well, yeah, you need to become like a child, but not childish. And that's what he's saying. You have become, you're still childish. You're still so petty. You're still so, all this self-interest and self, self-focus uh, and, uh, uh, you're, you're so animated about your own, uh, uh, establishment or, or uh, recognition among the world. Forget about all that. Forget about all that. Love your neighbor. Work out your salvation. Show your, your salvation. So show your spirituality by the way you interact with people. Not so self-focused. He says, look, when I was with you, I was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men. Again, not as I can't speak to you as Christians. No, that wasn't the point. I can't speak to you as mature people 
who are ready to receive the word of God, the word of God implanted, they're able to save their souls. He, they're, they're still, they're listening maybe out of one ear, but then they're really paying attention to what's going on out in the, the courts and the temples and so forth of Corinth and all the, the society and the, well, who's, who's having the party tonight? Because we want to make sure, because that's where all the important people go. And they were so much infatuated with the world and the wisdom of the world as being celebrated, which, which, mocks, laughs at, scorns the gospel of Jesus as crucified Christ. What is that about? We, we want wisdom. We want glory. We want knowledge and, and all this. And that over there is just so foolish. And so Paul says, look, I've, I've shared the gospel with you. I've talked to you about these things. I was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men. Your appetites, your desires, the whole things that motivate you in your action and your conduct with other people, it is fleshly. Now, I should mention this. There are three different terms. We've already seen the first one and the second one in these verses, verses 1 through 4. The first one is spiritual, which can, in chapter 2, of course, talk about those who are spiritual by position. That is to say, the Holy Spirit indwells them, so they're regenerate people. If you have the Spirit, you're saved. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. Romans 8 teaches us that. And so spiritual can refer to that, spiritual by position. But also spiritual, I think, in this context, has to do, in this, these verses, has to do with those who are walking in the Spirit. Like Galatians 5 says, walk in the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Spiritual as walking in the Spirit by practice. So positionally in the Spirit, but also practically. And that works out in Christ as well. Ephesians 4.1, for example, that we have been saved, we are called, and so we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That if, if we are truly saved, then that ought to affect our behavior, ought to affect our speech, ought to affect how we view ourselves, how to, how to, it affects how we view each other and how we minister to another. The, the wisdom from above is peaceable and considerate and all those wonderful things from James 3. And so spiritual has that two different, two different aspects. He introduces this second term here, uh, fleshly men. Or, or you're just fleshly. And there's a similar term we'll look at in verse 3. But he says here this, this idea of fleshly is just you're natural, worldly, but not natural like unregenerate. But you are you're, you still are having the image, I suppose, you could look at is a, a sheep that had been transferred from one paddock to another one but still wants to get into that first one. You're not there anymore. Positionally, you're over here. Why are you trying to get back to that? There's a reason why the farmer or the, the uh, shepherd Put you, t- took you from that place and transferred you, Colossians 1, transferred you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Why are you still trying to go back over there? Keep seeking the things above, where you are in Christ. And so fleshly men here in verse 1 has to do, has to do with those who are uh, just so much attuned to what's going on in the world and what is going on in their not unregenerate hearts, but the hearts that are distracted, divided, if you don't mind using James's terms, and following after fleshly desires. What are we supposed to do with fleshly desires? Are we supposed to coddle them and nurse them and say, oh, no, we can't do that today. We, we can't. You are supposed to crucify them, kill those fleshly desires. And these people aren't doing that. They're still so much interested in their own advantage, their own advancement, their own reputation, that they are following after those things. They're fleshly-minded. Again, it's not the same as sukikos, as we saw in verse, which verse was it? Verse 14, the natural or worldly or unspiritual person. But those who are still motivated, animated by the things of this world, celebrating those things. The third term appears in verse 3, and that is fleshly. 
you're still fleshly, and that has more, uh, not that the first, the second one rather didn't, but it has more moral implications, more ideas of chasing after that which is, is not godly. It is something that is, uh, if you don't mind, selfish. I don't, I don't know if I brought this out last time. When that last verse in chapter 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. There are many things that could be relation to that, especially as we looked at the uh, quotation from Isaiah's uh, writings, the quotation there in verse 16. But one way that that word, that phrase is used again, the mind of Christ, is in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mind is that? If you read on from verse 5 to 11, you'll see, oh, it's a mind that does not seek its own. It's a mind that is so willing to lay down himself to die. I mean, you can read all the different ways that Christ laid down his life for his people, but it ends in his death. And not just a, a death like a heart attack or, or uh, whatever, but a crucifixion, an execution as a criminal. Well, he wasn't a criminal. Why did he have to be? He's the prince of life. The, the, what, how, can he, how can he die? He died for us. Have this mind in you. Have this mindset. Have this attitude. Have this orientation of, of life so that you're willing to lay down your life for your friends, for your brothers. Have this mind in you. And so, so to this fleshly mindedness of the Corinthians, who are not totally, but uh, much, muchly. Can we use it that term? That word? That way, they were so oriented toward themselves, their own personal advantage, what they can get out of this thing. They were totally focused not on things above, but on the things of the earth, the accolade of men, the praise of men. Well, guess what? If you get the praise of men, that's what you get and nothing else. Hope it was worth it. Hope you enjoyed it because you forfeited the praise of God. But, but God, God is so gracious. He'll be kind to it. If you forsake him, and ch chase after the things of this world, he'll give you the things of the world, which is death and destruction and, and depravity and disappointment to the nth degree. When we look to Christ, at his right hands are pleasures forevermore. Wow! Wouldn't we rather have that? Paul says, look, you guys, you're saved. Why are you acting like the world? Why are you so fleshly? Why are you so selfish about these things? He says, I was not able to speak to you. What's Paul's ministry? Speaking. He speaks the gospel. He speaks the word of God. He teaches them. He transforms them by the speaking. And this re relates back to chapter one, or excuse me, chapter two, verse one, when he talks about superior of word or wisdom, proclaiming. He, he talks about the talk ministry that Paul had. And that truly, I mean, is special to the apostles, of course, so endemic to us, not endemic, that's the wrong term, but a specific a responsibility of us to speak the gospel, to speak God's word. We speak, we minister, we're agents of his uh, message, we're bringing his message forward. But he says, look, when I was with you, it wasn't that my words were limited, but you couldn't, you had no capacity to receive them. There's a phrase, uh, I don't know who coined the, the idea, but when the teacher is ready, or excuse me, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. You've heard that perhaps. When the student's ready, the teacher will come. Paul says, look, I was with you. I was there. I wanted to speak the word. And many believed, right? Thankfully, many did believe, but they were still or some portion of them were still really fleshly minded. And he says they were like infants, like babes. Again, many times this idea of children or, or uh, becoming, becoming like a child is encouraged. But here, no, not so much. To be infants in Christ, to those who are uh, childish. Do you remember he's going to say this again in chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13? 
when I was a child, and it's the same term, childish or infants we see here. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things or the things of infancy. When I became a man, well, when did he become a man? Well, he's, he's giving a human analogy. When you grow up, you, you put off those childish things. I mean, it's cute for babies to suck their thumbs and, and do all little baby things, but to see that in a 30-whatever-year-old or 50-whatever-year-old, it's not as cute. It's not as endearing. That's childish. What? And not just the baby things, but the baby's self-focus. I mean, you've, you've seen babies before, I imagine. And babies aren't afraid of in, in, interrupting, that's the word, interrupting any scene at any time for self-fulfillment. They want what they want, when they want it, and you better give it to them. And, and there's training involved, of course. But that whole self-focus is part and parcel of infancy, and Paul says that should not be should not be among you. I wanted to minister to you. I've given you this wonderful truth, but you are still motivated, animated toward that worldliness, toward that human aspect. And he says, look, in verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Now, there's some discussion. What does that mean? Is there some kind of a, a two-tier system then when, when you give uh, milk or, or easily digestible food to infants in Christ even, but then when you get older, there's a different set of doctrine that you need to teach. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. You remember in Acts 20, he's talking about the Ephesian, el talking to the Ephesian elders, so again, a church he'd been with for a long time, which breaks your heart on many levels because of what he's telling them. But he says, I was with you and I gave you the full counsel of God. I taught you publicly and from house to house. I taught you. It wasn't like there was a separate set of doctrines for the for the uh, almost believers and new believers and then the big mature believers. It's the same doctrine, but you can't always express it or explain it to the same depth. There, there's a limitation not on the doctrine. Like the scripture says, the entrance of God's word gives light. It's understanding to the simple, but it gives light to those who are simple, not those who are, are kind of sitting there and saying, what do you got to show me from the scripture today? Because I'm going to stand on judgment of it. If that makes me look bad, I'm not going to take it. That kind of attitude is what Paul is dealing with. And that's the kind of attitude we deal with with each other, if you don't mind. And start with yourself. You hear the word of God and you say, well, that's nice. I'm glad I did my devotions today. What else? What's up? What's going on in the news? What's sports? And didn't you just read that text? Did you let it soak into your soul? Did it let the light of God's truth examine you from head to foot? A lot of times we don't. And we find fault with other people. I'm showing you the truth of God. Can't you see it? Well, they can't. And Paul says, I recognize that. I recognize the limitation is not in me or the message. It is in you. You were not yet able to receive it. In his first foray of ministry among the Corinthians, and verse, end of verse 2 into chapter, verse 3, he says, indeed, even now, even you're still not able. What's the, what's the limitation? What is the hang-up with you guys? Again, it comes back to selfishness, pride, uh, arrogance, uh, and just a self-focus, all these things, which he gives a specific example of here in verse 3. But he says, you're still fleshly. You're still having your mind set on all these things. You're, you're still at a merely human level. You're, you're not thinking the things above. You don't value the things that God values. And so that, it's stunting your growth. And I'm trying to help you because the Corinthian church, I mean, Corinth is a tremendously uh, central location for all kind of travel going back and forth north-south somewhat, but mostly east and west across the Mediterranean uh, Sea, and 
this church has a reputation. Paul says, make sure that you have a reputation for Christ, not for selfishness or parties, factions or spirits or all these things. Make sure that your testimony is glorifying to God. It is honoring Christ. And it comes down to how you relate to one another. Even now you're not able, you're still fleshly. You're still setting your minds on this human level. You're, you're acting, you're not unregenerate, but you're acting like an unregenerate person, valuing what they value, being so selfish, so self-centered, motivated by self-interest. So he says, this is, this is horrible. And he gives a specific example in verse 3 again. What, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Well, he's already introduced the idea back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. You, know, you can look back, but he's, he introduces this idea. He says, since there is, I know, I've heard about it, and I saw a certain part of it when I was with you, there is jealousy and strife among you. Oh, well, Paul, you can't get too worked up about that. It's part of being human, right? Strife and jealousy it happens. When people get together, we have issues and problems. No. If you're in Christ, there is no place for strife and jealousy. There is no place for that kind of discord that breaks the fellowship of the body. Those things should be expunged. They should be cast away. There is jealousy and strife. These words are used oftentimes in Scripture together, and not, of course, in a good way. They're often used to see, well, in Galatians 5, for example, the deeds of the flesh. What are we like as unregenerate people? Well, it's quite evident. Look at the news. All, all kind, I mean, it's like this is, this is uh, the headlines. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. Here's our two words, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and a related word to jealousy, selfish ambition. Dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, so I present and past, that those who practice such things, ah, uh, they'll be fine. No. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And why is, so God, why is God so angry with these things? Because it's sin. Because it defiles his redemptive work in our lives. It defiles the relationship that we should have with one another, a relationship of peace it, it, it just undermines everything that God is in, intending, which is reconciliation. He's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. That is what we should act like. But, but he's offended me. She's done this. Don't you know what she's done to me? Seek reconciliation. Don't be so full of yourself and full of strife and jealousy. Uh, another example, we saw these same words are used in James 3. If you have bitter jealousy, here's our word. And then a little bit later, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, that's not want that. There's disorder in every evil practice. We don't want that. It's not how the wisdom of from above uh, characterizes us. Jealousy, that word is used sometimes positively. It just means zeal. Uh, zeal for your house has consumed me or will consume me. John 2 and verse 17 says there's a zeal for God. The uh, Hebrews or Israelites had in, in Romans 2, Romans 10 rather, verse 2, talks about the zeal that they had for God. So it's not talking about that kind of a zeal. But it is talking about a jealousy that is uh, maybe you could describe it as envy or covetousness, which, oh, seems like there's a commandment against covetousness, right? Thou shalt not covet in the good old King James. It is a desire for stuff, whether material possessions or esteem, the praise of men, as Jesus uh, dismissed. That's not an option. Uh, some kind of honor that you want from this age, some kind of status or privilege, a jealousy for that? What are you jealous over? Shouldn't we be jealous, as it's used positively in 2 Corinthians, um, 
11, I am jealous for you, Paul says, with a godly jealousy. So there's it's positive there. I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. There's a jealousy for the sake of spiritual growth and identity in, in Christ, but not a jealousy for stuff of this world. That's, that's fleshly minus. That's, that's this world kind of thinking. Don't be like that. Similar ideas about jealousy has to do with resentment. That I mean, again, it's talking about material stuff, stuff of this world. Well, I kind of resent the fact that you have that and I don't. And it makes me kind of mad. It can maybe make me upset. Not so much that you have it, but that God didn't give it to me too. And I guess if I can't have it, then I really don't like, I don't think that you should have it either. So let's see, you, do you mind giving it away? Would you mind? Well, just give it to me. Would that be okay? That's resentment. That is a, a malicious kind of manipulative uh, work that is not right at all. When there's jealousy among us, are you not fleshly? When there's a spirit of competition, now people can play games and all that, but when it gets into a spirit of one-upsmanship where you are willing to do whatever it takes to undercut your opponent, you don't view your wife or your husband as a, as a, a fellow heir of the grace of life. You view them as somebody you need to get, you know, get out of the, get, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you get, and, and that's not right for Christians to act this way in this kind of animosity that's going on. If you don't mind a rivalry between husband and wife, you're on the same team. How? What's the rivalry about? You're, you're supposed to be like-minded. You're supposed to be going in the same. Why do you maintain these, these differences? Be like-minded. Be intent on the same purpose. Again, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 speaks about that. So jealousy is, has no place in a marriage, in a family, uh, even between brothers and sisters in the, in the family. And aren't we brothers and sisters in the same family? Jealousy, this kind of, uh, again, a, a materialistic, worldly-based, world-based value judgment is just not right. Jealousy has no place. We saw it in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh. We saw it in James 3. Uh, we see, um, well, Romans 13, another, another opportunity. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And we think, well, jealousy is not that bad. When you see it in a list with, I mean, we would all agree, those things are not good. These this uh, carousing and drunkenness and those that's not good stuff. But strife and jealousy are right in the same category. Violation of God's work in our lives. Since there is jealousy among you, are you not fleshly? Aren't you walking just like mere men? He talks about this strife. The strife is again this this rivalry that that leads to actual discord, the, the, the breaking of fellowship. Not over good things. There are times when fellowship needs to be broken, but not in this way, not for strife for strife's sake or strife based on material uh, gain or advantage or, or things like that. Trying to be the superior one, the, the one who's on top, the one who has to be right, has to have the last word. That's not, that's not what we're about. This kind of engagement in, again, quarrelsomeness or contention or the, uh, a, a schismatic thinking, uh, you know, if, if, are you for me or against me? Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I want to be with you. What's the, what do you, what's the point that you're making? What is the difference that you're basing this, this question on? Why, why are we, why even thinking that we need to break fellowship over this thing? There's an issue of dis, disputing. Uh, uh, reject a factious man, Titus 3, uh, 10 and 11, talking about rejecting a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a one is perverted, being self-condemned, we want to be careful about any kind of divisive, schismatics, uh, can I coin a term, strifeicious kind of activity in our lives. We don't want anything like that. We want to pursue like-mindedness. 
And that means we do Philippians 2, having the mind of Christ, thinking of other people as more important than ourselves, seeking their interests above our own, not our own interests. We are peacemakers. Now, there's sometimes when peace needs to be not just kept, but created to make peace, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. And so there is a peace that comes out of conflict. So what can we do to resolve our conflict? What's the conflict all about? What's the disagreement? What's the what's what's that issue here? And if there's sin on either side or, or both sides, we deal with the sin. We turn away from it. We seek reconciliation. We seek understanding. But when you maintain these things, this kind of jealousy, competition, and I've got to be right and you're wrong regardless. I don't care what you say. You're wrong because I'm right and you don't agree with me. So obviously, uh, no, that has no place in our lives. It's a characteristic of the unregenerate person, not just the average unregenerate person, but those whom God has given over and over and over to their sin. By the time you get to the end of chapter one of Romans, they have been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips and it goes on and talks about that. Has should have no part in a Christian life. Since there is, though, Paul knows there is jealousy and strife. Are you not fleshly? Are you not those seeking after the things of this world? Are you not walking like, and that word mere, well, in the second, in the fourth verse, the mere is italicized. The idea, aren't you acting just like unregenerate people? You're not. You're babes in Christ, but you act like unregenerate people. You're walking just like uh, men. And not in an, an, adult se- an adult sense, but human as, a pers- as opposed to God or spiritual. You're acting like uh, you got your mind on backwards. Your your brain is is not working properly. Now I should mention because if you have a King James, New King James, uh, or some other similar translations based on uh, different text, you have a third word here: strife or jealousy, strife and um, divisions or discord or factions. I think is how it's translated. Uh, that third word is also appears in, in Galatians five about dissensions that we could look at. Uh, kind of has reference to Romans 16. I don't know that that's, I don't think that's in the, the best manuscripts that we have of this text. I think it's bringing an idea that is, again, a, a biblical idea, but not so much here. But if you have King James or New King James, you'll see that extra word about dissension, divisions, and again, the problems that go on with that. Are you not walking like mere men? The study of walking is, well, you want us to skip when we do this thing? No, it's not that issue. It's walking in the manner of life. Your conduct, your behavior is like this. And it's it's not just a one-off thing. I mean, okay, everybody has their bad days, their bad moments, their, their times when they're just, you know, they're focused on themselves for whatever reason. A one-off thing is understandable and easily repented of. But this is part and parcel of your life. This is something that's so ingrained in your life. You are walking. You're conducting your life in this way. And it's not appropriate. It is not follow. You are spiritual people. What are you doing acting like the world? Aren't you walking like mere men? Now, he returns to this example in verse 4, and he says, now, what's the big deal? Certain people say they have an affiliation or a devotion or whatever to Paul. Some others say Apollos. But he says that is not as innocent as it may appear. You are being divisive. You are being uh, a fa- showing favoritism toward people who have no basis for showing favoritism too. And that's what he gets into in the rest of chapter 3 and in chapter 4 about the role of Christian servants. And what are, what's their role? Well, should we rally around Paul or Peter, Cephas or, or Paulus? Or should we say, I don't need any of those guys. I have Christ himself. I don't need any human teacher to help me. I Christ in me. 
And Paul says that is the wrong way to approach it. It's the wrong way to understand what I am doing among you and as, as Paul the Apostle, as Apollos, a great teacher, eloquent, a man full of the scriptures and knowledge and all these things. He says, when you rally around humans and when you differentiate, oh, you're of the, you're, you're not of the right party. You, you need to really, have you heard what Apollos is saying? And even the, the, uh, animosity, I suppose, they had against Paul for a variety of reasons. Paul, in, in this epistle, and especially in the second one, what we have is 2 Corinthians, really defends his apostleship and his work among them. Because they were beginning to think, you know, Paul, you, you are so weird. You're so out of step with the world. We, we, we think, we think, right, guys? We think you're out of base, out of line. We think that your whole ministry is, is uh, subject to our scrutiny, and we, we've decided... We really don't have a use for you. We would prefer rather Apollos because he's Alexandrian trained. He's more eloquent in Scripture. Not that Apollos is wrong. I don't think the, the issue is Paul is raising up a faction for him or Apollos is doing or Cephas even or Christ is not doing it. He's you know, because Christ divided. No, but people are, are being just so focused again on, on advance, advancement and the wisdom of the world and say, well, Apollos makes things better than us. I think, by the way, remember in chapter one, he described in verse 12, I'm of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. He mentions four names. Here he only mentions two. And there are various reasons you could suggest why that was. But it could be that only Paul and Apollos, at least according to Scripture, had a specific role in Corinth. Paul uh, started the church and then Apollos came over afterward. This is all in Acts 18. And so they had specific or personal relationship to the church in Corinth. Cephas, there's no record of him traveling to Corinth. He could have. It's, a, again, on the on the route to Rome, which is where he was executed, at least as, as far as we understand. Did Christ have a particular earthly role in Corinth? No. He barely, in his earthly ministry, barely got out of Israel. Got into Tyre, Sidon, up to the north a little bit, but he was, he was mainly in Israel, so definitely not in Corinth. But Paul and Apollos both were. And Paul says, when you rally around these people, uh, you're acting like mere men. You're acting like those who are so, so focused on what you can gain, the advantage that you can have, by supposing that, that there's a difference between Paul and Apollos. There's not. But you're rallying around them. And, and we can do this as well. We don't have to just look at Paul and Apollos. We can look at modern-day teachers or, or, or dead preachers of, and we say, well, I'm of this, this guy or I'm of this guy. What do you do in a rallying around that person? I remember one guy saying, I, I know people love me not because of who I am personally or my story, but it's because I give them the truth. I serve them the truth. And they love me for it. It's not based on anything about me. And so there's no reason for him to be, you know, full of ego and, and self-importance. I give you the truth. I speak the truth to you. And that is what resonates. That's what builds the connection. And Paul says, don't rally around people. That's divisive. That's, that's uh, seeking your own whatever, whatever you're after. It's just foolish. Aren't you acting like mere men? Those who are just uh, so much characterized by the wisdom of this age, which is perishing. It's being abolished. Don't seek after these things. Again, the contrast is not so much this is a minor issue in the church in Corinth. This is a serious, issue, a significant thing. He mentioned it in chapter 1, told the whole thing about wisdom and the contrast there in chapters 1 and 2. And now he says, look, it, it is showing you're in Christ, yes, but you are acting like children. You're acting like unsaved people. You're, you're still animated, motivated out of the things of this world. Set your minds on things above. Your citizenship is up there. The role that we have is not to get followers after our own selves. That's part of the, what he said to the Ephesian elders in chapter two or chapter twenty, verse uh, twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Um, 
certain among certain men among your own selves will rise up teaching things they ought not teach for the sake of sordid gain. What are you going to get sordid gain from followers who devote themselves to you? Oh, you're our teacher, and we're going to follow after you. No, don't do that. You are you're the church of God. You've been saved by the blood of His own one or own son. You are His. Give your devotion to Christ. Be thankful. You know, he says, make sure you guard the or watch or shepherd the flock, but you feed them God's truth. You feed them God's word. Don't get followers after yourselves. Again, that's not what Paul and Apollos are doing, but that's what the people are falsely, falsely doing and making problems in the church and being divisive and uh, over things that mean nothing. They're so insignificant. The the end result of it, or excuse me, the basis of it is is wrong, but how it affects the, the the fellowship in the church is undermining the unity of the Spirit, which we must maintain, Ephesians 4, 3, in the bond of peace. Live at peace. Live at peace with each other. Paul says this, this is an issue in the church in Corinth. I'm trying to ex, 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 uh, expose it, expunge it, get it out of here. But you guys have got to repent. This this idea, uh, you're, you're acting like children, well, there's an aspect of, yes, the child will outgrow it. They're sucking on the thumb, the little tantrums and all stuff. They'll outgrow it. But there's a certain element, no, they need to repent of that right now. I know they're only 18 months old or, or, or whatever, but that's not, no. I'm not going to wait till they're 7 or 8 or 10 to repent, to, to grow out of it. They need to learn that is wrong right now. And after these church, this church in Corinth, okay, you're acting like babes, you need to stop it. Repent of that. Seek peace in this church, not for the sake of uh, let's all just get along and, and, and uh, resort down to this milk, kind of milk toast Christianity, but based on doctrine which humbles us and teaches us the unity that we have in Christ and how we ought not to be so divisive. Living at peace with other people is what Paul is admonishing us to at this point. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth, which is so transformative, so wonderful, so life-changing. We pray that we would be humble before you, that we'd receive, again, the word of God implanted, which is able to save our souls, but also to deliver us from the wickedness of foolishness, of selfishness and self-interest and worldly thinking. We're grateful for the peace you've made between you and us when that was just enmity and hostility, but you are the one who canceled that debt, that certificate of debt, which was against us, and we have a salvation that regards us as holy, Wow. I mean, we know ourselves, you know ourselves, but you are the one who is changing us from glory to glory, even from the Lord, the Spirit. And yet we pray that that would be true of this whole church, this fellowship here, but also around the world, your church that you have saved. We pray that there would be peace among us. We pray that there would be doctrinal unity based on your word, not factiousness, not divisiveness, certainly not jealousy, envy, greed, all these wicked things. Help us to lay down our lives, even as our Lord did for us. This is love, that one man lays down his life for his friends. So please help us to evidence that. Again, we pray you'd save and sanctify all who are here for your good pleasure. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.